In a few minutes, I'm going to answer for you an age-old question about what was happening before God created the heavens and the earth and humankind. Because the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then we think, well, there's not much that we can really say about that. Surely there's no one wise enough to tell us what was happening before God created the world. And I'm here to tell you that today we have wisdom before us. I'm going to tell you about what was happening before God created the heavens and the earth. So just wait for a moment for that. But first, let me tell you a story. Some of you uh, will have heard this before, but it's a great story. Get Johnny Lingo to help you find what you want and let him do the bargaining, advised Schenken. As I sat on the veranda of his guest house and wondered whether to visit Nurabandi, he'll earn his commission four times over. Johnny knows values and how to make a deal. Johnny Lingo, the chubby boy on the veranda, stooped to and hooted, stepped up and hooted the name, and then he hugged his knees and rocked with shrill laughter. Be quiet, said his father, and the laughter grew silent. Johnny Lingo's the sharpest trader in this part of the Pacific. The simple statement made the boy choke and almost roll off the steps. Smiles broadened on the faces of the villagers standing nearby. What goes on, I demanded. Everybody around here tells me to get in touch with Johnny Lingo, and then they break up in laughter. It's some kind of a trick, a wild goose chase, like sending someone for a left-handed wrench. There's no such person, is there? In this village or any other? Is he some kind of village idiot? Let me in on the joke. He's not an idiot, said Shinkin. Only one thing. Five months ago at a festival time, Johnny came to Kinawata and found himself a wife. He paid her father ten cows. He spoke the last words with great solemnity, and I knew enough about island custom to be thoroughly impressed. Two or three cows would buy a fair to middling wife, four or five a highly satisfactory one. Ten cows, I said to myself. She must have been a beauty that takes your breath away. That's why they laugh, my guest said. It would be kindness to call her plain. She was little and skinny with no uh, endowments. She walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked as if she was trying to hide behind herself. Her cheeks had no color. Her eyes were never opened beyond a slit, and her hair was a mangled mop half over her face. She was scared of her own shadow, frightened by her own voice. She was afraid to laugh in public. She never romped with the girls, so how could she attract the boys? But she attracted Johnny? This is the story that Schenken told me. All the way to the council tent, the cousins were urging Sam to try for a good settlement. Ask for three cows, they told him, and hold out for two until you're sure he'll pay one. But Sam was in such a stew and so afraid there'd be some slip-up in this marriage chance for Sarita that they knew he wouldn't hold out for any, that he would hold out for anything. Sorry, that he wouldn't hold out for anything. So while they waited, they resigned themselves to accepting one cow and thought instead of their luck in getting such a good husband for Sarita. So they're thinking if they get one cow, they'll be doing well. Then Johnny came into the tent, and without waiting for a word from any of them, went straight up to Sam, Carew, grasped his hand, and said, Father of Sarita, I offer ten cows for your daughter. And he delivered the cows. As soon as it was over, Johnny took Sarita to the island of Cho for the first week of marriage. Then they went home to Narabundi, and we haven't seen them since. Except at festival time, there's not much travel between the islands. This story interested me. So I decided to investigate. The next day, I reached the island where Johnny lived. When I met the slim, serious man, he welcomed me to his home with a grace that made me feel like the owner. 
I was glad that from his own people he had respect unmingled with mockery. I told him that his people had told me about him. They speak much of me on that island, they do. What do they say? Well, they say that you're a sharp trader, I said. They also say the marriage settlement that you made for your wife was ten cows. I paused, then I went on, coming as close to a direct question as I could. And to be honest, they wonder why. They say that. His eyes lighted with pleasure. He seemed not to have noticed the question. Everyone in Kitawana knows about the ten cows? I nodded. And in Narabundi, everyone knows it too. His chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid ten cows for Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought with disappointment. All this mystery and wonder and the explanation's only vanity. It's not enough for his ego to be known as the smartest, the strongest, and the quickest trader. He had to make himself famous for the way he bought his wife. I was tempted to, to deflate him by reporting that in Kinawata he was laughed at as a fool. And then I saw her. Through the glass, beaded porteries that simmered in the archway, I watched her enter the adjoining room to place a bowl of blossoms on the, on the dining table. She stood still a moment to smile with sweet gravity at the young man beside me. Then she went swiftly out again. She was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. Not with the beauty of the girl who carries fruit. That now seemed cheap, common, earthbound. This girl had an ethereal loveliness that was at the same time from the heart of nature. The dew-fresh flowers with which she pinned back her lustrous black hair accented the glow of her cheeks. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. And she turned to leave. as she turned to leave, she moved with grace that made her look like a queen who might with enchantment turn into a kitten. When she was out of sight, I turned back to Johnny Lingo and I found him looking at me with eyes that reflected the pride of the girls. You admired her? He murmured, she, she is glorious. Who is she? That's my wife. I stared at him blankly. Was this some custom I had not heard about? Do they practice polygamy here? He, for his ten cows, bought both Sarita and this other? Before I could form a question, he spoke again. This is only one Sarita, he said. And his way of saying the words gave them a special significance. Perhaps you wish to say she does not look the way they say she looked in Kinawata. She doesn't. The impact of the girl's appearance made me forget tact. I heard she was homely or at least nondescript. They all make fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. You think he cheated me? You think ten cows were too many? A slow smile slid over his lips as I shook my head. She can see her father and her friends again, and they can see her. Do you think anyone will make fun of us then? Much has happened to change her. Much in particular happened the day she went away. You mean she married you? That, yes, but most of all, I mean the arrangements for the marriage. Arrangements? Do you ever think, he asked reflectively, what it does to a woman when she knows that the price her husband has paid is the lowest price for which she can be bought? And then later, when all the women talk, as women do, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, another maybe six. How does she feel the woman was sold for one, who was sold for two? This could not happen to my Sarita. 
then you pay that unprecedented number for cows just to make your wife happy. Happy? He seemed to turn the word over on his tongue as if to test its meaning. I wanted Sarita to be happy, yes. But I wanted more than that. You say she's different from the way they remember her in Kinawata. This is true. Many things can change a woman. Things that happen inside, things that happen outside. But the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. And in Kinawata, Sarita believes she was worth nothing. Now she knows that she's worth more than any other woman on the islands. Then you wanted, I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman. But I, I was close to understanding. But he finished softly. I wanted a ten cow wife. And that's exactly what he got. I can remember years ago a young lady that uh, was in my youth group. I won't say her name in case this ever gets back. She was homely. She was gangly. She was not pretty. Graduated from our youth group, was never the center of anybody's attention, never part of anything significant. Went away to Pepperdine University. A couple of years later, she met a young man who was on his way to being successful, who absolutely fell madly in love with her. And I can remember, like yesterday, when she walked into the church building, her home church, and brought her new boyfriend with her, who I, maybe at that point he was her fiancé. And when they walked in together, you could see the glow on her face and something had changed. There was no doubt about it. In fact, you could see the glow on her face and here's what I would say. That the glow on her face was exactly the reflection of the light that was in his eyes when he looked at her. And she became exactly what he thought of her. And they're very happy today, wonderful people, and I just praise the Lord for the way in which he worked in her life to bring someone into her life who would make her so very happy. It was a beautiful, beautiful depiction, very similar to the 10 cow story that I just told you. Well, we have a story kind of like this in the Bible. You don't need to turn there today. We're not going to read the story. I just want to tell you briefly. There was the story of Hosea, a prophet who wanted more than anything to do God's will. And so it was very strange when God came to him one day and said, Hosea, I want you to take for yourself an adulterous wife. And Hosea thought, how in the world can I possibly take an adulterous wife? But the reason that God wanted Hosea to take an adulterous wife was in an attempt to show to Israel how important God's love for Israel was. And so God said to Hosea, take an adulterous wife. And he did. They eventually had three children. She continued to be adulterous. The children would, in fact, ridicule the wife, talk to the husband about the wife. This was a huge problem as her adultery continued. But Hosea was told by the Lord, continue to take her back, continue to love her, be to her the husband that you should be, no matter how she is. And the story, when you read the prophet, that goes through the first three chapters or so, doesn't really end. Like, as the story finishes, you find Hosea taking Gomer back one more time. You can, can you imagine a woman today being named Gomer? 
Hosea takes Gomer back one more time at the end of the third chapter and the story kind of ends and you don't really hear the ending. You don't know whether or not she continued in her adulterous ways or she became the wife that God wanted her to be. But the one thing that's so clear in the story is that no matter what, Hosea was to love Gomer and he did. And it's a perfect illustration of God loving humankind no matter what they do. In fact, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament and you read into the New Testament, what you have is a depiction of God continuing to love humankind no matter what. And so no matter what we do, God continues to love us. And we fall and we're not at all what God wants us to be, but he continues to love us. And the hope is, God's wish is, that somehow, if he loves us with the greatest love of all, that we're going to eventually become... Ten cow Christians. That we're going to become what God wants us to be because he loves us so much. And so the whole story, from beginning to end, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, really it's just one story of God seeking after humankind, loving us more than we could ever imagine or deserve. And he cares for us anyway. He continues to love you no matter what you've done, hoping that you will be exactly the child that he wants you to be. Now quickly, let's go back to the very beginning, even before the beginning of time. What we have here is God. That's the one thing that's clear in scripture. In the beginning, God. And what was it like? What was it like for God to be there in the very beginning? Well, I would say that there are three things happening there. I would say that there is God's nature, that there is God's knowledge, and that there is God's plan. His nature starts like this. It's a threefold nature. In the very beginning, in the first two or three verses of the book of Genesis, we learn that there is a God who creates everything. We learn that he brings it into reality through his word, which also exists. And we learn that there's a spirit who's hovering over the surface of the waters. And so God, from the very outset, is three in nature. Well, what do you have when you have three perfect lovers? What do you have when you have three perfect beings who are so closely united that they could never possibly be separated, except maybe if one of them chooses eventually to be separated because he loves humankind too. And so you have a God who loves us and he is within himself love. It's his very nature. He's three and the three are love. God is in a sense relationship. It's, it's like his essence. His nature and being is to be relational and to be love. And so that was there in the beginning. And it's only natural then, only supernatural, for God to show his love to us. His love spills over out of his very being. Every part of God is love. And he wants to love. And so he creates us in order to love us. He wants his love to be extensive. However, there's a problem. And this is where the knowledge part comes in. God knows from the very beginning exactly what we're going to do. He knows about Adam and Eve before they ever do it. He knows what the world is going to be like in the time of Noah before it ever occurs. He knows what the children of Israel are going to do when he brings them out of Egypt and they go into the desert. He knows that they're going to complain. 
He knows that when he gives them the promised land and they go in to take the promised land, that they're going to follow after the gods of the people who are there in the promised land along with them. He knows that. He knows that they're going to continue to be idolatrous all the way even up until the time of Christ. He knows that no matter what he does throughout the history of Israel, they're going to continue to violate his will and not be the children that he wants them to be. He even knows that eventually he's going to send his son to the world And the Bible says, and his own people loved him not. And so the world takes the offering of his son and they put him on a cross and they kill him. All for the sake of people that he loves, even though he knows that they won't love him. And so since God knows all of that, he formulates a plan. And of course, the plan is to send Jesus. The plan is for Jesus to be the savior of the world. And for that savior to convey to us, more than anything, God's love for us. God's love for you. So that no matter what you have done, and I guarantee you've all done it, that no matter what that is, God's love nonetheless extends to you. And so the whole grand story of scripture is nothing more than God's redemption of humankind. He, he, in his very nature loves us, but knows that we're going to be sinful. And so plans from the very beginning before the world was ever created that he would eventually come and give his son to die for you and to me and for me. And so there's perfect love coming right out of the nature of God. Over the next several months, we're going to be looking at this story, God's redemptive story of humankind. But I'm kind of giving you the answer already in the beginning. What God wants from you ultimately, the reason why there is a redemptive story, is because God wants for you to be a ten-cow Christian. A a ten-cow human being. He wants you to become what you could never possibly become on your own. But in response to his love, you can be something beautiful as as God works in your life, present, showing and exemplifying his love to you in Jesus. So be ready for that. Be ready to hear and to receive the story of what God is going to do in redeeming humankind for himself because he loves us. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for the privilege and blessing we have of being here this morning. Thank you, God, for our time of worship and praise to you. Father, I pray that over the next few months that your redemptive story, as it's told in all of these stories in the Bible, will become clear to us that we will not only understand it, though, but that it will be real to us, that it will impact our lives in a significant way. Help us, God, to respond to your redemptive love. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.